Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. We are now back with the fourth annual President's Day Draft. Four years, I cannot believe it. This is annually one of my most favorite episodes to do and quite honestly has legitimately become one of like my favorite dates of the whole year that I can look forward to. For the longtime listeners, we Ricky and I are rejoined by our good friends, Dan Gonzalez and Joe Webster. If you haven't listened before, the four of us went to high school together here in Boston. We have come together since Ricky and I started this podcast to do an annual President's Day draft. The first year was kind of a Mount Rushmore of presidents. Then two years ago, we did the most influential 20th century Americans. Last year, we did the most significant dates in American history. And this year, we are doing the most significant speeches in American history. Uh, Dan is a lawyer. Joe is a computer scientist. Uh, I am also a lawyer. Ricky is uh, in energy. Uh, So that's kind of the four of us. We've been very good friends for 20 years now. More than that? More than that. Coming up on on 25 years now. So uh, thrilled that we can still get together and do this again. It really is one (laughs) of my favorite uh, days of the year. Uh, So... Before we get into the the draft itself, I'm always a little bit curious as to how people think about a topic like this. Every year we, we come up with this one topic and people can kind of take it in the different directions that they want. So I, I want to throw it and just kind of go around the horn here and hear how people thought about this topic when they're researching it. So we'll start with Dan. Yeah, so I think the text message was, um, most significant, impactful, like influential speeches. So kind of just start off with just some general, like, you know, Googling, you know, spe- US, U.S. history, like, you know, most impactful speeches, yeah. start down that road. And I thought it was actually pretty heavily weighted towards like a lot of like presidential speeches. Um, it's what I found. And so I kind of went down that road for a while. And then I tried to then narrow it down a little bit more to like, you know, kind of like outside some presidential speeches. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of the lists online are like really heavily like um, weighted, you know, if you look at like a a list of a hundred, maybe like 70 are are presidential speeches. That makes sense, right? Those are the ones people think of when you think of like most impactful speeches, you're thinking about the presidents. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll see a lot of those. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I'll kind of start off with that and then try to, and then I, you know, I tried to narrow it down by like, you know, times in history as well i found that i was getting like a lot of speeches too from like the 1900s so i kind of wanted to you know i started to target a little bit more like 21st century speeches go to like Mm. you know 18th century or sorry like 19th century speeches um so so i could potentially have a more like weighted and balanced uh you know rushmore um so and then i kind of you know just narrowed it down a little bit more from there as well like you know outside of like the presidential range and then into different like uh time periods so that's kind of like how my research went. How um, deep is your board? So, uh, yeah, good question. So I was actually 
in the very beginning, I had like a hundred pages of like just like Microsoft Works. I was just like copying. This is why we bring Dan over. <laughs> so, yeah, so what I was doing is like I was like I'd find like a good website and like I'd copy and paste without really even reading sure. it on the site. I yeah, paste yeah. it into like a Word document. So that by the end, I had like eighteen to twenty you know potential speeches, and then like printed that out and kind of like then read through the you know summaries and all that, narrowed it down. I I actually got it down to like twelve or thirteen that I really like, and I'm pretty confident that one or two of them are not going to be in the top. It's <laughs> pretty like, confident a lot of other slash here. hoping. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I was actually thinking about like order. Like I actually would prefer to be third or fourth okay. today. Um, I don't want to be first and second because I have like I have these two that I really want to get. Wow, that's um, really interesting. So and I'm pretty sure they're not going to be like a, a one and two pick. Okay. for everybody else but there's okay. like a three and four that i think are gonna be on other people's board that i want to get and so if i'm like that third or fourth pick i feel like i can get those two in um so that's where i, I would actually prefer to be like that third or fourth pick today. well if so. history holds you have only been the third and fourth pick in these drafts yeah. you picked so, fourth the last two years and third the first year so odds are it's probably not gonna work out for you but uh, we'll we'll see all yeah. right ricky i'm sure your preparation was similar to dan you had hundreds of pages of research that you printed out why don't you tell tell us how <laughs> your research and preparation went Ah, uh, ah, Brendan, <laughs> you like to needle me. <laughs> so if this is your first year joining us, you may or may not have picked up on the sarcasm in, in, in Brendan's tone, but I am annually the least prepared of the of the of the Never cor- of the quartet yeah. here. Um, my although I will say as soon as I get the topic I start thinking but okay it just, just doesn't the yeah. problem is the research just doesn't extend beyond my brain until mm-hmm. it's far too late which was in my case about two hours ago <laughs> but the way that I started was so like significant impactful I think these are interesting words because on the one hand you can say impactful means like because of x y happened so I can I can tie some action to a speech. I think that was very hard for me to do. So instead, especially using only my noggin here, I went with speeches that I remember, that I think are memorable. Um, I think that those have significance in a way that perhaps isn't, cannot be directly tied to impact, although obviously I think there were many memorable speeches that were also impactful. So I went... I got. I had about ten that I could come up with off the top of my head, whose like lines that I think everyone will recognize. Um, I had to go and read a little bit about them and yeah. learn that some of those lines were perhaps not exactly what I thought they were, or the context around them made them made me understand them differently, which was interesting. Um, yeah, I'm. I guess I'm hopeful I can go first so that, that Kelly can leave me alone for making bad picks year after year as number one. Because well, I think my one or two. I'm expecting will like be, the miracle speech or something bad for you from number one or something like that. I don't know. Like, well, I don't know okay. what I can get. So I think I think that's the that's the other thing, right? Like greatest speech. Like there have been some great speeches which are not necessarily like you yeah you you might not think of them as impactful in the way that you were you'd say sort of like these presidential addresses really like set the tone right i think a lot of them are from inaugural speeches and things like that that a speech like from from the movie miracle might not be on there but it like is is it is great in a in perhaps a different way i didn't go in that route but i thought about it yeah (laughs) all right joe tell us about your strategy Sure. So, actually, um, I spent uh, a decent amount of time 
considering different criteria to consider when um, selecting the speeches. Uh, I'll run through some of them. Uh, I probably overthought it a bit, but um, so some criteria I, I consider were historical significance. So whether the speech marked a, I guess, aligned with a pivotal moment in history, social and political impact, inspirational value that inspire action, motivate change, etc. Oratory excellence, representation of American ideals, influence on public opinion, advancement of civil rights and liberties, uh, innovative uh, communication. Now it's about the same as Ricky's, right? So what's no? I mean, I think all of these. I, I feel like some of these were like A tier criteria. Others were more B tier, like historical significance. Like my picks were generally weighted against historical significance um, or social and political impact. Something like oratory excellence may be something worth considering, but generally has less weight in my final decision. Um, other than that, as far as research was concerned, so some of you guys have mentioned Google, I'd imagine probably all of you use Google in, in some capacity. Mm -hmm. So I actually uh, relied pretty heavily on ChatGPT this year. Um, I'm a software engineer and I use it for my own personal work, um, and I found that uh, ChatGTP has several uses beyond just programming. So, what is so? First off, ChatGTP has kind of become like uh, so. Anything I would I would have previously Googled for, I now use ChatGPT for, uh, in large part because if you are trying to get information on a particular query, like. Uh, most important speeches or most impactful speeches, Google will present a list of results. You then have to kind of go through each individual uh, result to find the information you're looking for. What's nice about ChatGPT is that it just gives you the information. Um, additionally, you can kind of mold and structure the format of the information that's provided to you. So just I'll quickly go through like, you can create prompts or, you, or these are just the questions you pose to ChatGPT. So, uh, um, so one of the prompts I used was, you know, for the following speech, enter your speech name in the orator. I would ask, provide the historical context leading up to the speech, include key events and dates that pre precede the speech, provide a brief description of the contents of the speech, present the result response in bullet point form, uh, describe the impact or influence of the speech, provide a few key quotes, list key themes of the speech, provide any interesting facts regarding the speech. So really here in this case the true power of chat gpt is i i can very specifically tell it what information i want and it will just give it to me now the caveat here is uh you still have to do your own due diligence mm. these uh generative ai tools are known to hallucinate sometimes there's like they sometimes they won't answer your question uh correctly for instance i asked if if i ask it give me the top 20 uh, most important or impactful speeches of the top 10. Um, one selection actually wasn't a speech. It was a, a written document. And I think number 10 on the list was a speech made by N Nelson Mandela, who's not an American. Yeah. So uh, it's certainly not perfect, but I think it's a great, for me at least, it's a great way to start the research and kind of get the juices flowing. So uh, I found it particularly useful. Yeah, and I, I said to you when we were talking about this offline, I think it's going to be fascinating to see what similarities, what differences, if the lists that the, the generative AI produced for you are substantially similar to what 
Ricky Dan and Joe, I, Ricky Dan and I came up with or different. So I'm really fascinated to see. Like, I feel like there's a new wrench into the process. So I, I appreciate you doing it. Ricky, I would say I'm probably closest to you actually in my research process. I came up with, I started with just top of my head. One of the speeches that I can name from like American history that I think were significant. I had, I think like 10 or 12. And then I went and like, let me find some other ones. And what I love about doing this besides getting to hang out with all of you guys is I feel like I learn a lot every year. And there were definitely speeches that I didn't even know about that I found and I was like, that's a speech that has to be mentioned at this point. So I think mm -hmm. we'll, as I get into probably rounds three and four, hopefully we'll get into those a little bit. Uh, but kind of very excited to to hear everyone's thinking and how like these processes play out uh a lot has changed in the last year since we did the last draft joe you and i graduated from our respective graduate programs dan you had a, a new baby which is super excited ricky you have a new house and a baby on the way we're recording from a different location than we have the first three years so a lot has changed in the first three years but one thing that hasn't changed so this podcast is still brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen at Cannon Hill Woodworking. You know they've been building handcrafted, high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. So definitely go check those guys out. Let them know that we sent you. Uh, before we take a quick break, I want to give out, let, let's do the draft order. I think, Dan, unlike you, I, I want one of the first two picks. Okay. So I, I think I think to me there's a clear top two here. I've thought that before, and Ricky has proven me wrong. <laughs> so this might not be true, but I think to me there's a clear top two. So we're gonna do the picks, and then we'll take a quick break. Uh, so Joe, what are you picking? First. Joe's picking first overall. Huge. Huge. Fourth. Ricky's picking fourth. Daniel. Ah, uh, second. No, this didn't work it's out not, well for it's either of us. It's not what I wanted at trade? all. All right, and I'm picking Rule. third. So again, when we come back, it'll be second. Joe one, Dan two, Brendan three, and Ricky four. So with the number one overall pick in the 2024 a Gentleman's Disagreement, President's Day Draft, The Greatest Speeches, The Most Impactful, Significant Speeches of American History. Joe Webster up with the, with the pick. All right, so this is actually, uh, understandably so, a, a tough pick. I mean, the my top four at least, I, I like, I, I, I all like a lot. Of, I honestly think I can't really go wrong with any of these here. I'm interested to uh, see what you guys think. But what I'm going to do is before saying... The, uh, the name of the speech and the art. I'm going to read a, a quote and I'm going to have you guys um, tell me uh, who gave the speech. So here's the quote. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be wow. purchased at the price of chains wow. and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Woo! Wow. Patrick right. Henry. Mr. Yeah, Patrick Henry. Yeah. Where? It's Virginia. Second Virginia Convention. Yeah. Also very high on my big board. But yeah, I, me too. Wow. Yeah, okay. I think Brendan's now ecstatic that I his one or two are still available. My, my, one of them fell to me, but that was that was fifth yeah. on my board. So that's it's definitely, I think it's a great choice. Sorry. So, so, yeah, I'll just start by saying my rationale here was without the American Revolution, what else is there? Right? So, <laughs> so, what start, are we even start, doing here? So, yeah. Yeah. Got to start at the beginning. So anyway, 
Uh, just run through it really quickly. So this speech, um, known as Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech by Patrick Henry, was delivered on March 23rd, 1775, amidst growing tensions between the American colonies and Great Britain. So just quick recap here for the, uh, the listeners, if you weren't aware, I, I wasn't. Um, Patrick Henry was an American attorney, planter, politician, orator, prominent figure in Virginia politics, and leading figure in the American Revolution. Uh, the speech was given at St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia during the Second Virginia Convention. The Second Virginia Convention was a meeting of delegates from all parts of Virginia as part of the broader movement towards independence from Great Britain. So leading up to this event, the British had increasingly imposed a series of taxes and laws on the colonies, such as the Stamp Act of 1765 and the Townsend Act of 1767, uh, both of which were met with growing resistance and discontent from the colonies. So I won't go into the details of both of these acts, but essentially they were tax imposed by the British par Parliament on the colonial governments uh, without uh, the ex explicit approval of the colonial government. Um, so some key moments from the speech. So, so Henry's speech was a decisive call to arms, urging the colonies to fight against British oppression. The speech is best known for its concluding statement, give me liberty or give me death, which encapsulates Henry's willingness to die for the cause of American liberty. He criticized the illusions of hope that peaceful negotiations with the British would yield positive outcomes, arguing instead that preparation for war was necessary. The speech conveyed a sense of urgency, pressing the convention to take immediate and decisive action by raising militias to defend Virginia against British aggression. So some themes in the speech were liberty versus tyranny, patriotism and sacrifice, urgency and immediacy, and uh, it also included some religious motifs. So really, for me, what it came down to here, so. So I'll, I'll go over some of the impact here, but I have a, a comment to make on this. So um, in terms of impact, it galvanized support for the revolution, revolutionary cause. It's credited with convincing the Virginia House of Burgesses to pass a resolution delivering Virginia troops for the Revolutionary War. And um, the speech became a rallying cry for American independence, um, influencing public sentiment and encouraging other colonies to unite against British rule. Now, um, one thing I want to say here, like, as far as like rallying cries go, this is like one of the all-time greats. Kind of, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of uh, like Braveheart. You know, yeah, the freedom. Yeah, um, and just another quote from the the speech that I like is, um, "The war is inevitable, yeah. and let it come." I repeat it, sir. Let it come. In uh, translated in modern terms, as basically bring it. Yeah. Um, so, I guess the last thing I'll just note about this speech is that, like. Like many speeches, like to to uh, kind of steal a, a phrase from Game of Thrones, like words are wind, right? Like a speech, I often think is only as important as the actions that follow, right? I think in this case, you can. So, but there, I guess you, in the, with this speech, you can't draw a direct line between this speech and like the beginning of the American Revolution. It's just like one part in a number of um, events that led to the, the, the beginning of the revolution. So um, certainly you can, yeah, you can see like the significance or influence it had, but unlike when we chose our presidents, you know, a president, if he signs a bill, he takes complete credit for the bill. But with these speeches, it's just like one part of a larger whole, um, which sometimes made it difficult to determine whether a speech was significant enough, but uh, I'll leave it at that.
I'll be honest. I thought Kelly was going to throw his hands up and be like, there wasn't America yet. Well, you can't, you can't use that speech. <laughs> but, <laughs> see, Chad GPT can't catch yeah, everything, yeah, though, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the problem. But, You're relying on AI like that, right? I, so. I, I would 100% give it to you. I think yeah. one of the things that's interesting in like reviewing something like that is that it takes you back to it, to that moment where it was actually very contentious whether yeah. or not we would go to yes. war. Whereas, like, now we think of, like, that it's a foregone conclusion. Of course course we had to go to war. But in the time, it was very much a, this is the British Empire. They are, like, the biggest and baddest mofos out there. And we're, like, basically a fledgling colony, you know, consortium that we're trying to decide whether we're going to fight the largest superpower that exists in the world. And his speech is, like, I'm, yeah, basically either that or or kill me now. And, And that's, I mean... If, to really put yourself in that moment and and relive kind of where he w- was with that speech and where many people were but many people weren't yeah. but in, to your point Joe like the the getting people that rallying cry getting people like up and and on your side I think I think that speech has has a lot of of credit behind it yeah I, I want to echo what you said at that point, it was all up in the air. And again, like we look back on history and it all seems linear, it all seems inevitable, but it wasn't. And this was the speech. He starts it off by saying, quote, no man thinks more highly than I do of the patriotism as well as the abilities of the very worthy gentlemen who have just addressed the house. But different men often see the same subject in different lights. And to me, that's just saying, we had a bunch of men that just stood up and said, we should not go to war. Let those people in Boston and up north do what they want, but we're not in Virginia gonna do that. And Patrick Henry, not only the ability to speak to the elite, who are assembled here at the second, you know, Virginia convention, but also this rallying cry that you correctly point to of "Give me liberty or give me death" that anybody in the colonies could like hear and understand and relate to. That's one of the most galvanized. It's I'm sure this will happen many times. Me, yeah, like chills just thinking about yeah. something like that. And uh, so, absolutely, I think a, 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 a yeah. hugely impactful speech. A very good pick. Yeah, I mean that was one of the ones I was hoping wasn't going to go like one or two, <laughs> yeah, like sorry, three or four, yeah. you know. So it's kind of a bummer. I thought that, yeah, it's uh, like you said in the beginning, uh, with, without that speech, we're not doing the podcast here today, right? So it's, uh, fit, I guess, fitting to be number one. So. Okay. Well, then we will, on that note, we'll throw it to number two. And Daniel, that's you. Okay. One second. All right. So quote is, um, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. So that is the I have a dream speech. Um, so it's a public speech that was delivered by the American civil rights activist, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, during the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom on August 28th, 1963. Probably like, you know, when you think about MLK, I think a lot of people would probably immediately think about this speech yep. and the impact that it had on the um, civil rights movement. Um, it was delivered to over 250,000 um, supporters um, from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in D.C. Um, and as I mentioned, it was probably one of his most iconic, one of the most iconic speeches in American history. Um, the March on Washington um, put a lot of pressure on the Kennedy administration to advance certain civil rights legislation in Congress. Um, just some like interesting things when I was like, you know, doing like research on this is like a term that I never heard before. I don't do a lot of like public speaking, but like anaphora. So the repetition of a phrase at the beginning of a sentence, 
And if you like look at the speech, there's like certain things that are like the way that he um, structured the speech. So like um, now is the time it was repeated three times in one of the paragraphs. And then the often quoted, I have a dream is repeated eight times. So I think people know like that phrase that I read earlier, but it's actually repeated throughout in, in different mm -hmm. contexts. Mm -hmm. um, so this was interesting to me too, because like, you know, reading through the speech, you know, I read through the majority of it and like, I hadn't really read through it ever before. Um, and to kind of like see some of those ways that he made it so impactful, um, just like the structure of it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think like the significance of it, you know, um, start state, you know, it is, um, was a, a moving moment um, and, and had a huge impact on, on the civil rights movement in, in our country. So to me, this is one of the two. I think if you stop people on the streets, anybody on the street and you say, name a speech in American history, I think maybe more than 50%, but I would say even a plurality would, would say MLK, I have a dream. And that's, I think what has to be one of the criteria is that how does it still resonate in people's minds today? And so for me, it's a, it's a clear top two pick. And I, a couple things that I came across in my research that I thought was really interesting. So he starts the speech and he's kind of drawing on the history. It's obviously in front of the Lincoln Memorial. And he's saying that we, we're standing in front of this man who signed the Emancipation Proclamation. But 100 years later, like the black person in the United States is still not free. And so kind of building off Joe's first speech, he says, quote, early in the speech, when the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so I just love, and I'm sure this will come up many times, is like the connection, like the, tr the through line for all these speeches. What's Patrick Henry talking about? It's the same thing that Martin Luther King is talking about. And I think that 200 years later, very cool to me. But what I learned in my research was that he gives all of this speech and he felt that he was falling short. And John Lewis, who was there, said that like, He's, he's looking out over the, as you mentioned, 250,000 people, and he's like, my words aren't resonating. They're not landing as I thought. And this woman, a singer, Malia Jackson, calls out to him and says, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And then he launches in impromptu to the speech that he's given before. But this was, this was not necessarily the written speech that he had planned to give that day. But he just speaks from his heart and soul. And that's what I think resonates with people 60 years later. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. I just I'd, I'd add uh, um, of the speeches on my list. Um, I tried to watch as many as I could, and this was one of the ones I enjoyed watching the most. He well, first off, you know his language. He's such beautiful imagery um, in his language, and he also I really enjoyed the like the emotion and the passion that really comes out in the speech. You know, towards the beginning, he's quite you know. Um, uh, I don't know, I guess you could say not reserved, but in control, but towards the end, like the, the energy kind of builds and builds and builds until at the end, he's kind of, sh kind of shouting. Yeah, and he's just, like a preacher. That's yeah, yeah, exactly, right? exactly. Yeah, he's like yeah. a preacher. And that was really, uh, um, impressive to watch. And, uh, and I really enjoyed, um, yeah, the entire speech. Yeah. Well, your point about, uh, the Mahalia Jackson, it's like it, that comes directly out of any movie where some guy's got his note cards and he's kind of yeah, yeah. fumbling through his speech <laughs> and then someone's basically like you know speak from the heart and all of a sudden it just comes out in a way that that resonates with everyone i mean and even you know our, our number one pick was also i i think in some of the things that i was reading about that was also like potentially extemporaneous maybe ideas that he had already mm -hmm. had before but kind of getting up there and saying it in the in the in that way in the in that order 
very much like just just came out there. I think I think the date August twenty eighth, nineteen sixty three, right, a hundred years mm-hmm. after. I won't I won't I won't spoil pick number three, but he starts <laughs> off the he starts off saying five score years yeah, ago, exactly, and yeah. he knows exactly what he's doing, yep. right? And so mm-hmm. I think I think all of that is very interesting because he is pulling these images but then in some way he's realizing in the moment that they're falling flat that they're not hitting the notes that he wants them to and he pivots in real time which is just like insane to this like amazing crescendo in front of 200,000 plus people on the Washington Mall I mean I Joe Joe to your point I mean like we these are things that you hear that you hear the quote yeah I like the, the the two lines basically the the one that you said, Dan, and then I think the other one, which is, I still have a dream deeply rooted in the American dream that one day this nation will rise up and live up to its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And he, I mean, yeah, it's just, yeah, it gives you chills. Yep. Totally worth yep. watching. Some, like, start to finish, watch the whole yeah. thing. Because I I'd never, I don't think I'd ever done that before. I'd only seen clips of the parts that people quote and it's yeah the entire thing is is worth it for sure yeah great. It was a great i didn't realize that certain parts of the speech he pulled from other places too you know that was kind of interesting to i, I didn't know about uh, you know kind of like the facts of that that you know in 1962 you know he had pulled some of like that that i have a dream refrain from like a speech from there and also like earlier in 1963 too um so that was all interesting to learn as well so I have the third pick, and as Ricky has correctly <laughs> divined, I'm gonna re- I'm gonna read this whole thing because I don't think it's gonna take that long. <laughs> Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth in this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that a nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot concentrate, consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, but can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us here to be dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Gettysburg Address by Abraham Lincoln. 100 years before Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Again, to me, this is, if you ask people on the street if, if the I Have a Dream speech is one, I think this is a clear two. People know this speech under two minutes. He was not the featured speaker that day. Edward Everett from here in Boston was the featured speaker, spoke for two hours. Uh, <laughs> afterwards, he wrote to Lincoln and said, quote, I wish that I could flatter myself that I had come as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. Lincoln was, of course, wrong in, the, in one of the assertions of his speech that the world will little note nor long remember. It actually became, in many ways, the, the defining, I think, ethos of, of the, the moment of the, of the war. Ricky, you and I have talked about this. Up until that point, 
Lincoln was not necessarily an abolitionist, and, and the war was fought largely to save the Union. That was the point, is we had to keep the United States together. And for the first time here, Lincoln brings in this idea that it's these words in the Declaration of Independence that the point of this country was that all men are created equal. That's what this war is about. It's for the soul of this country. It's the first time that's ever happened. And I think that's before, I, between the Declaration of Independence and the Civil War, those words in the Declaration, I don't think were as venerated and as honored as they were post-Lincoln. Now it's kind of become the part of the American story that of course, this is the country was founded on all people, all men are created equal, but Lincoln bringing this to this speech really encapsulated that. And an amazing moment to recognize all the people that had fallen, the men that gave their lives to on, on this battlefield, but also for the greater struggle and the greater idea of the American experiment. Yeah, I, th I think that was really well said. I, I don't know that I have much to add, but I suppose I'll try, as I always do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think a few things about that speech, the fact that it was four months on from the Battle of, of Gettysburg, right? That happened July in, in 1863. Um, a decisive victory for the Union, but clearly not the end or even close to the end of the Civil War. And so you have Lincoln, who's, I think, I think it also said that he was like coming down with smallpox at the time or something, <laughs> yeah, I didn't see something that. insane. <laughs> He's cause he takes a, he takes a train from Washington yep. to Pennsylvania to give this speech. And then on his way back, he's like delirious. So it's likely that he just like kind of, you know, put, put a few of these words together because he was called on to give this speech to, as you said, consecrate the cemetery of Union soldiers, which it's for a very, very blo bloody battle of the Civil War would have been many, many soldiers. Um, and, and I think everything else that you said rings true. And I'm, I'm very interested in some of the speech, some of the great speeches to follow, because I think this is one of the ones that if you're drawing the line, right, if you want to yep. draw the American history in a very straight line, you probably go from Patrick Henry yep. <laughs> to Lincoln, then from Lincoln to Martin Luther King, yeah. and then maybe some speech by Obama, right? In 2008. Sure, we'll get there. <laughs> and, you, and, you just, and you just yeah. draw it very yeah. linearly, and, and I think you were right to point yeah. out that even even Lincoln for, for the Emancipation Proclamation and, and all of the other things that he sort of stood for and touted kind of as the civil war was evolving was very much conflicted. And I mean, there are even probably even during and after the fact still conflicted, but being able to put words together like these are, yeah, un unbelievable. Did anyone have these not in their top three? Well, obviously no. not. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah, 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 yeah. That was, yeah. that was, uh, going to be number probably number one for me yeah, yeah. so or number two for me sorry yeah yeah 
Well, you could have picked yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we'll now throw it to annually the most interesting part of the draft, which is Ricky. Ricky's on the clock for the fourth and fifth pick. It was just funny to me. Ricky asked if I wanted to put any constraints on this draft as not just like let it go throughout all American history. And I was like, why would you, of all people, want to put constraints on the draft when you routine, routinely, whenever we put constraints in, <laughs> go outside those constraints? So there are no constraints here, largely, I think. Pick a speech, a real speech by an American. I'm sure you're up to the task for this. I think you're up to the task. I should have been like Chat GPT. Write me the most yeah, yeah, speech yeah. of the 20th century. All right, what do you got? Pick number four. Pick number four. So, first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Mm -hmm. Nameless, unreasoning, mm -hmm. unjustified yeah. terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Yeah. This speech. Franklin D. Roosevelt, March 4th, 1933, his inaugural address. Um, so we're in four years into sort of the throes of the Great Depression. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the Great Depression is ostensibly a fear-driven situation, right? You have these stock market crashes, the bank runs, because people are worried that our system of society and basically how we create you know you put money into a bank and you're able to do all these things lending investing that sort of stuff is is crumbling before us and he's basically saying that in order to get out of this first we have to stop being afraid and start yeah. believing in ourselves again and he's really of course pitching his his new deal again as as he embarks on his first term as president um I think that line is iconic. I I think you hear it in so many mm -hmm. different, or, you know, arenas or, or avenues um, that I, you know, it's one one of the top five that came to my head. So there we go. Here we go. Perfect. <laughs> what do you guys think? Honestly, like when I when I was like doing a prep for this, I knew that line, but I didn't know what speech it was. Yeah. So I kind of have to like look it up and read about kind of like the significance of it and like you know. Um, Kind of like, frankly, uh, like what was leading up to it, history involved. But it was like kind of like one of those speeches that, like, if you said it, I know it was like impactful, but like, I didn't know like where in history it fell. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think that's what he's another one where you look back on FDR, you know, four term president, World War II president, New Deal president. But at this time, this is his first major speech to the country. And his main job here is to restore confidence. This country is at one of its it's probably lowest point since the Civil War of people are, are scared and his main job here is to restore confidence. I'm here, my administration and I, we have a plan to make this better. And he delivers with this iconic speech and that allows everything that he's able to do in the next 13 years to flow from that. So I think I wouldn't be surprised if we hear from FDR again before this draft is over. I think this is the number one of his speeches. I, I would just add that... Um... I was really impressed by uh, the the confidence that FDR exudes in the speech. I mean, the United States has never been in a depression. Well, yeah, this is the I guess the really one and only like true depression the United States has ever been in. FDR gets on the stage and he he seems to know exactly what he's doing. He seems like he has a plan. I don't know where they had the <laughs> confidence. Like, yeah. you know, there was no uh, playbook to refer to to get out of a similar situation. So, I mean, he just comes out, he says we need, we need prompt, decisive, and experimental action to address the economic crisis. Um, 
and so like I said earlier, like words are wind. Like it's one thing to like you get to talk the talk. You also got to walk the walk. He he nailed it. I yeah. mean he, it, you know, uh, I you know got listen to just some of his policies, right? Like, and so I guess this speech was made in 1933, first year, year of his presidency. You know, within that first year, he's just a slew of legislation that he enacts, and then um, what follows is several programs that still exist today, like Social Security Act, FDIC, Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, so he really implemented some uh, large institutions in the federal government that still very much exist. So uh, it's really quite remarkable, remarkable in my opinion. But Yeah, I'm, and you got me thinking a little bit. I, <laughs> I, I think we often bemoan the fact that like economy is almost always number one of like the issues that people think about when they're going to the polls. I, this 2024 might actually be in a weird way it is one but like it's not really one yeah. um but in in this and i normally will say that presidents have very little impact on the economy this is one of those you know exceptions that prove the rule uh, these kind of policies that joe outlined just basically like the massive spending that the government is about to embark on in order to get people back to work in order to FDIC to report restore sort of faith in the banking system, Social Security to give you know people who are now no longer able to work a way to you know not die in poverty um, if they don't have sufficient savings that kind of thing all all of that um, has this massive impact on the economy because it's able you know obviously the injection of cash is one thing but just getting people back to work that was sort of the the hypothesis that like our biggest problem right now is that we have high unemployment and high unemployment is leading to all these other issues which like what you know where do we start and he's like well the government can start with this unemployment issue and tackle so many of these other problems that way like if we start here and and he turned out i i think largely to be right in that context in that history now obviously things are changing and it's very hard to to get away from those programs maybe in the way that they were never intended to like look the way that they do today and that's also sort of a, a um i don't know an idiosyncrasy of how our government works that sometimes it's easier to take something existing and to like twist it a little bit or add something onto it than to scrap it and start from fresh and so i mean it, it is it i don't know it's something that like you have to grapple with i guess both the short-term incredible benefit and you know you can really look at how we were able to respond in world war ii as a function of how quickly we were able to get out of the great depression right like if we still had 20 percent unemployment are we actually able to participate in world war ii the way that we were i don't know so i i think from that perspective there's just like a lot to be said about that but then how how it looks 50 60 70 years on i don't know I think I think there are some legacy things that we're we're grappling with, still. I don't disagree with that. And, and Joe Naiman, all these programs that currently that still exist, <laughs> we'll see how long they still exist for. Uh, but Ricky, you are back on the clock with the fifth overall pick, the first pick of the second round. <sighs> yeah, that's a total nightmare for me. I would love to go, go, go back to the. But there were four people. We yeah, did four yeah. things, right? We're good. Yeah. <laughs> go back to the research board. Um, <laughs> all right, I am. 
this is this is basically the story of me whenever I go to a restaurant. I have I know exactly what I want to order, but I get up there, I panic, and I say something yeah, different. Just, it's a nice menu you got yeah, there. Yeah, you know? yeah, There's a lot of choices. Yeah, and so often I will I will regret it. But I'm I'm gonna go with I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna wing it. I, hey, nervous. I've been this way my entire <laughs> life, so I I think I think you'll be okay with it. You may be surprised that it's coming from me, but. Um, as long as this gate is closed, as long as this scar of a wall My is guide. Seen, it is not the German question alone that remains open, but the question of freedom for all mankind. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. <laughs> Ronald Reagan, June 12th, 1987. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't actually know that I have a ton to say about this and it's not just for the lack of research, but I think a lot of the, I think a lot of the, that phrase and, and really his speech kind of speaks for itself. It was very emblematic of this kind of winding, winding down is probably a strong word, but really sort of the tail end of the Cold War and the speech to me, it, is almost as significant of as the falling of the Berlin Wall as that kind of like the first, the first brick to fall out. Where where did you guys have this one? It wasn't really in my top twelve to be honest. Like it was. I had it twentieth, number nine. Yeah, it's a little farther down the list for me. All right, so Joe, you had it the yeah. second highest. So why don't you talk about like <laughs> yeah. why you thought it was significant? Right. So, um, so this one. Um, it, it, uh, it came very towards the tail end of the Cold War and uh, in many respects was kind of the beginning of the end for the Soviet Union. Um, and, you know, like presidents are known to do, they espouse the benefits of the ideals that, well, I guess the United States politicians and presidents, they, they espouse the ideals of of America and uh, you know, in this speech he um, he really kind of dunks on uh, <laughs> he, you know, he, he basically criticizes economic failures and the suppression of freedom in the Eastern Bloc contrasting it with the prosperity and the liber liber liberty in the West so he's saying you know you, you know this Eastern Bloc you guys if you guys have an economic issues you know maybe you know uh, try a little uh, you know open a little democracy yeah, a little capitalism open, <laughs> open markets maybe you guys can do a little bit a little better um, but uh, you know it's it's, um, I think it's one of those moments where um, I think one of the benefits of making speeches is um, you can very vocally um, reiterate the values that you believe to be the most important. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, I guess it's just. Neither as far that. as one-liners, I think it's yeah. it's up there for sure, right? It's definitely a, a mm -hmm. top-tier speech, and I think it's one of those things that people know of. Uh, Reagan's probably, I, mean, I, just, I think it's Reagan's most famous speech. Uh, yeah. And, yes, yeah, certainly very significant. Obviously, the history of this is a lot of people counsel him against, including this speech, this line in the speech, right? It was, you can kind of, as Joe, you said, like, espouse the general virtues of democracy and capitalism, but, like, things seem to be getting better with, the Soviet Union and with Gorbachev, like maybe we don't want to push him and challenge him directly like this, but he does anyway. And Ricky, we talked about when Gorbachev died. This is Gorbachev probably gets just as much credit here 
and quite honestly, probably more than Reagan does. But still, like their relationship over the course of these years is significant in ending what was a, a 30 year Cold War and still the closest humankind's ever got probably to extinction. So, yeah, yeah. certainly a, a huge event. Yeah. yeah, I got nothing else to add to that. So, yeah. All right. Well, that brings me to the sixth overall pick, the second pick around two. I will read uh, the an excerpt from the speech, but I think this is the first speech that you guys are not going to get the expert excerpt from. So I don't, I don't know that you will be able to identify you're picking it. like a part of the speech. No, I just or... don't think there's any part of the speech that any of you would be like, oh, I know what that speech is. I hope I hope right. that I'm wrong, and so I'll tell you why I think the speech is so significant. Obviously, but I don't. This doesn't have the one-liners that I think the first five do. Okay. So it's going to take a minute. Quote, this for the purpose of this celebration is the 4th of July. It is the birthday of your national independence and of your political freedom. This is, to you, what Passover was to the emancipated people of God. It carries your minds back to the day and to the act of your great deliverance and to the signs and to the wonders associated with that act and that day. This celebration also marks the beginning of another year of your national life. It reminds you that the Republic of America is now 76 years old. I am glad, fellow citizens, that your nation is so young. I say it with a sad sense of the disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. The 4th of July is yours, not mine. I know the answer. Yeah, I think so. You go for it. Uh, Frederick Douglass, The Hypocrisy of American Slavery. Yeah. yeah. Good but had that. you heard any of those words before you did this research? No. No. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Same. How do you know this speech as? What title do you know this speech as? The Hypocrisy of American Slavery. You? Or, or is this it like is, a 4th of July This is not yeah. to the slave is the 4th of July, Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the, the same, same Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. That's so, uh, so I think... I think you can. It's known by a couple of different titles. Yeah, I don't think he wrote it as like he didn't title it. The hypocrisy of a slave, yeah, or yeah. what? What is the fourth of July to a slave? Because none of those lines are in there. But again, and now I'm I've got I've done two picks, and I'm in the same time period for both of them. But in many ways, aside from the actual founding, this is correctly known as a period of the second founding, where we kind of have to come as a country to grips face to face with the original sin of this country and. All of these great things that we've said about the United States in these first five picks of all of the things that we stand for in terms of of promise and uh, the idea of the ideal of equality and democracy and freedom and how successful we've been. This is Douglas kind of turning a mirror to everyone and saying, this is yours, not mine. And I, I guess just a little bit of background, I'm sure most people know Frederick Douglass, a former slave, uh, because, uh, runs away, frees his becomes free and becomes the leading abolitionist is one of the the great speakers in my opinion in, in american history certainly at this time in terms of galvanizing public opinion towards abolition in the north and even has lincoln's ear in some ways at this time so when i think about my first pick of the gettysburg address it, it's quite possible that doesn't come to pass without frederick Douglass and his his words and his example and uh, i think this is a, a really for me, the most powerful example, and this is where I can draw a line to MLK, of you know, this, at when F, when Frederick Douglass is given the speech, he's saying, you enjoy all the blessings of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, but we don't. And King, 100 years later, is in many ways saying a very similar thing. Yeah, and like the way like he starts off with a speech, it's, it's very much like um, he's acknowledging 
like the founding fathers and like their, you know, commitment to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, like the way he starts off the speech. Um, but then, you know, he acknowledges everything that they stood for, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, but then, you know, pivots to the fact that that's, it's, you know, the, the hypocrisy there, that it's only like applicable to, you know, uh, nothing, you know, it, to, to only few, so. This speech is number 12 on my list, but I didn't feel great about it in large because I was looking at the, my list of what was the impact or influence, and it's just, you know, raise awareness of the, the moral and ethical arguments against slavery and inspired um, abolitionists. So I was looking for like a direct line from the speech and something that may have happened in the shorter, medium term, but you make an interesting point of how you can draw a line from this speech to Martin Luther King. So I guess maybe my lens of looking for immediate or looking for impact was a little too narrowly focused, but I think you do make an interesting point that there are those in the future that draw on his words from the past. Yeah, I don't, I don't, again, probably don't have too much to add. I think the, the, that, that idea that in, like, in our Declaration of Independence, we say one thing and we mm -hmm. end up instituting or sort of codifying something totally different in our Constitution with sort of the three fifths clause, that this idea that, on the one hand, we can say something like all men are created equal okay. and then have, and, and, you know, this was actually not lost on our founding fathers either. Uh, Jefferson and, and, and Washington also, I mean, right. They, they freed their slaves after they died, but they were all, you know, struck struggling with this idea that in order to get the colonies together, they had to, put this and it, you know, easy for them to do obviously all white men um, many of them slave holding but but put this put the question of slave, slavery aside to get the colonies together to fight the british but then all of those you know the rights of man all of these things that that they say are are sort of innate human rights all of a sudden depriving that those of other people and it comes up obviously and and in ways that are sort of verbalized no better than somebody like Frederick Douglass. I think we talk about this a little bit too, when you know now we finally sort of commemorate Juneteenth as well as the Fourth of July, and thinking about those Fourth of July celebrations and what that must have been like for people who were enslaved to celebrate an Independence Day that wasn't theirs. Like yeah. that is, um, yeah, it's one of those things that like people probably live with this feeling but to put those feelings to words is a very different um is something very different yeah last word on this dan just to echo your point is what i really loved about this speech was how <clears throat> he makes it very clear how much respect he has yeah. he quote fellow citizens i'm not wanting in respect for the fathers of, of this republic the signers of the declaration of independence were brave men they were great men too great enough to give fame to a great age does not happen often happen to a nation to raise at one time such a number of truly great men and then he contrasts that yeah. with this doesn't belong to me though. And I just, it's, it's kind of both of those things can be true. Yeah. Yeah. The ideas were great there, but like the implementation of it is just yeah. not, it wasn't happening. So, yeah. Okay. So now we move on to Dan with your second overall pick, the seventh, the seventh overall pick and the third of the second round. So I was actually going to go for that speech. No way. Yeah. That was next wow. on the list. Yeah. So I had to quickly, quickly pivot, yeah. you know, credit to me here. So credit to you. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And uh, actually, you know, Brendan will appreciate this. Um, why does Rice play Texas? You know? So. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Set <laughs> yeah. my speech, Dan. Oh, wow. Wow. All right. So I'll, I'll give the full well, line that maybe more people will get. But, yeah. so, but why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do other things, not because they're easy, but because they are hard, because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win and others too. So I think that part of that, that a lot of people, if you would, would recognize it, especially people probably like our parents and maybe people like slightly older than our parents would recognize is, you know, the, um, not because they are easy, but because mm-hmm. they are hard. Yep. So, uh, this speech was made by uh, JFK, um, and on September 12th, 1962, um, to bolster public support for his proposal to land a man on the moon. Uh, this speech was made, uh, at Rice University in Texas. And this was really, this speech was made during like, you know, the, the central, the space race. So, uh, the competition between the Soviet Union and the U.S. Um, at that time, the Soviet Union has had kind of more success at that point. Um, they had already landed Sputnik, and they'd had generally just more success in that area. Um, also, like, American prestige at that time was kind of damaged by the Bay of Pigs as well. Um, so this was very much like a, um, a speech to kind of bolster, like, the, you know, the, the like, the, I guess morale may have been low within the U.S., you know, at that time um, with like the battle with the Soviet Union. So this is very much a speech to kind of like raise the spirits and like get people motivated um, within the U.S. Um, Let's see if there's any other facts I want to touch upon real quick. Um, No, that's about it. I mean, um, I'll let you guys, you know, kind of jump on that too but yeah I, I got a couple of things there. just to piggyback on what you said you mentioned Sputnik so Sputnik was the first satellite in space which Soviet Union sent in 1957 and then 1961 Yuri Gagarin was the first man to orbit Earth in space so the space race is on now Kennedy's administration was keen on asserting American leadership in technology and exploration and he saw space as the new frontier in the speech he kind of um, compares to um, space um, to um how the sea had been new frontier, yeah. um, you know, uh, yeah, I guess. Like the explorers of yeah. those days, right? right. Like the but, Magellans and you know, right. but Columbuses. He, and, yeah, he yeah. kind of, he, he, and what's interesting is that he, he stresses that this is a new frontier, but um, it's important, the actors involved are important. And he felt like the United States um, almost had like a duty to involve itself so that they could help dictate the terms of how um, interaction in space would happen, right? So, like, it, it really still felt like JFK was like, we're the good guys. We need to play a role here so we can make sure that, one, you know, we keep the Soviet Union at bay and also, like, you know, there are good actors in the space to make sure that, you know, it doesn't become another war in space. Now, what you're seeing about this speech is I thought, like, largely the space race is about the dominance of space for military applications, but... This speech doesn't even really talk about military applications. It talks more about really true, the benefit of exploring space for the benefit of really mankind. Um, there would be significant 
uh, you know, new learnings and um, through the research and development, uh, the uh, creation of new products and services to, you know, benefit everyday day life of Americans and, um, you know, global citizens. So it was interesting. So now, of course, he doesn't mention military applications, but of course, it, it there was the dual purpose of strategic, like potentially strategic military uses as well, but he doesn't focus on that here. I think in faith, in good faith, he really does see the value in just exploring space for the purpose of just like learning and development, which I thought was uh, really interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I think that sort of along the lines of what you were saying, just that the, the spirit of the competition there, that there was at this time an impression that Soviet Union, parts of the Eastern Bloc were you know, advancing in math and science, right? Like first we had developed the, the nuclear bomb, but then they did. And then all of a sudden, right, the tide has, has turned and now they've sent someone to space and we haven't done that yet. So it was like, like you all said, this sort of rallying cry, um, but also kind of this idea that because our values and the way that we've set up our society are different. It is important that we are out there at the forefront of this as much as anybody else. And I think that coupled with this, this idea that nationalism is still very much alive and well in this, in this, I mean, it's alive and well today, but really in, in this spirit as well, where it's not just on the battlefield, Joe, like you were saying that it is in these types of endeavors that, Anything anybody can do, Americans can do better. Yeah. Um, it's like the hearts and minds. It's this idea of the, everything that the Kennedy administration brought is this idea of hope and that we can do all these things, this new generation of leadership. And we can, along with this new generation, we have this new frontier to explore and we can do it. Not It's hard, but we, who can do this better than Americans? Yeah. No one. You know, it's like uh, you can see why JFK was such a powerful speaker at that particular time. Yeah, I think like when you also when you talk to like people like in like the generation above us too, like how big the space race was. I mean, like it was like broadcasted in classrooms yeah. across everywhere. Yeah. Like it was a it was a very big deal. So like, while it is about kind of like he's talking about the space race here, it's like it's it's more like this race to space is just like an embodiment of just a competition between the two like entities, the Soviet Union and the U.S. And it's just took its form through the space race, you know. So it's not as much about the goal of getting somebody on the moon. Like what is that, what was that really going to do for? For the U.S., it was more just like kind of inspiring the people um, in other yeah. countries. So yeah. But. Okay. All right, Joe. It's been a while since your first <laughs> overall pick. You're going to wrap up round two. What do you got? Sure. Here is my quote. Yesterday, December seventh, nineteen forty-one, a date which will live in infamy. Mm. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire, Empire of Japan. This is, of course, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, the speech is oftentimes referred to as war message or a date which will live in infamy. Um, so to provide a little bit of context, so this is of course in, well, maybe not of course, but this is in, yeah, 1941. And this is uh, a few years after the start of World War II, which was, in, was, which was September 1st, 1939. So the day after the attack on Pearl Harbor, um, Frank, uh, FDR makes a, uh, makes a speech to a joint session, joint session of Congress. Um, and it's important to note here that at this point in the war, the U.S. is effectively neutral. 
Um, so in the speech, he basically, um, he calls for a formal declaration of war against Japan, uh, framing the conflict as a righteous defense of, of the American nation and its values in the, in the face of unprovoked aggression. Um, what's interesting is that at the time of the attack, the United States was in good faith negotiations with the Empire of Japan. So this really was um, a, a, surpri a surprise attack, um, uh, which, you know, as we all know, was completely uh, unexpected. So I think really the, the, the significance of this speech is really what, what follows. Um, so it, of course, it turned the tide of American public opinion um, from isolationism to active involvement in the war. Um, the U.S. involvement uh, and eventual uh, victory of the Allies led to significant changes in the international order. I think that's really um, like the the big significance here. So, just some of the many um, results of the end of the war were that you know the U.S. and the Soviet Union emerged as superpowers. There was a decline of European and colonial empires such as India, Indonesia, and various African nations. There's the formation of the United Nations, the birth of the nuclear age, the, the Bretton Woods system, which um, established the International, International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, and it also laid the foundations for global financial and trade frameworks, frameworks that continue to shape uh, the global economy. So this is you know, one of those pivotal moments in American history where um, you know, you know, there's, a, there's a before and there's an after, right? After the United States is attacked, we enter the war, we win, and then we essentially we're able to shape the world order like as we largely as we see fit so yeah we're still seeing the effects of um the yeah the, the end of the war yeah all the things that you said when we did our draft of most significant days in american history i had pearl harbor second for all of the reasons that you just said so completely agree with everything i think one interesting thing between your two choices so joe's first choice was patrick henry give me liberty mm -hmm. give me death and now fdr a day to live in it for me at both of those moments, there's real doubt about what the United States could kind of do. And obviously, in Patrick Henry, the United States doesn't exist. Should we stay with Britain? Should we enter into a revolution? Here, there's real debate in the country. Should we remain an isolationist nation, just kind of step back and do our thing over here, let Europe have their own wars? Or should we get involved? And this tips our hand. And so I think it's interesting. I know you couldn't have picked the six speeches that became that came in between your your choices but i think both of them are pivotal moments in american history like you say that there's a before and then there's an after good all right with that we will wrap up round two we're going to take a quick break and we will come back with rounds three and four Okay, we are now on to round three. Joe has the first overall pick in round three. His previous two choices were Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death, and FDR, a day that will live in infamy. Joe? Thank you, Brendan. And uh, I've realized uh, now that I'm going to be continuing my theme of uh, speeches that are around the times of events that there were clear befores and after. So here's, here's the quote. Um, Our war on terror begins with Al-Qaeda. But it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. So this was uh, George W. Bush's 920 address. So as the name implies, this was on September 20, 2001. It was nine days after the 9-11 Al-Qaeda terrorist attacks. George Bush made an address to a joint session of Congress. Uh, so in this speech, 
Um, he officially declared the U.S. Would, would lead a global war on terror to, the, to defeat terrorist organiza organizations. He demanded that the Taliban regime in Afghanistan hand over al-Qaeda leaders, including Osama bin Laden, and release imprisoned foreign nationals. He told the, he told the military to prepare, to prepare for action um, and assured support for their impending mission. He announced the creation of the Office of Homeland Security to coordinate domestic protection efforts. And he emphasized that the war on terror was not a war against Islam, high highlighting the distinction between the religion and the extremist ideologies. So in terms of you know, impact, um, the speech, of course, rallied American and international support for the invasion of Afghanistan and the broader war on terror. Um, it also led to significant changes in U.S. policy, including the Patriot Act and the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security, which I mentioned a second ago. Um, and ultimately, it galvanized global efforts against terrorism, shaping international relations in the early 21st century. So, you know, like um, I mentioned above, this is really the begin of the modern war on terror, which you, you can argue really kind of ended um, just a couple of years ago in 2021 with our withdrawal from Afghanistan. So we, this is the beginning of our significant uh, involvement in the Middle East. Um, you know, our stated goals, you know, it's debatable whether we, we achieve them or not. Um, but certainly um, this falls in line with my theme of like pivotal moments really before and after. So, you know, after um, the 9-11 attacks, you know, really the nation and the world or have changed irrevocably. Yeah, it's very hard to argue that this wasn't... I think all eyes were kind of on George Bush after 9-11. And so this is that sort of the speech of like, well, what are you going to do? Well, here's, here's the plan. I think this is one of those speeches for me that like it just doesn't age well. Hindsight being twenty twenty, the this notion that we're just going to go out there and we're going to fight these terrorists wherever they are and we're going to defeat them because we're the big bad, you know, U.S. military. I think that this is where we sort of had to, you know, 20 years on and the, the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, we sort of realized that our military might doesn't necessarily solve the problems that we thought we could solve. And I think that notion, the clarification that this is a war against terror, not against Islam, was a very nice thing to say. It didn't really work out that way in many respects, right? We went into largely several different Islamic countries. We, you know, brought people back to Guantanamo Bay, didn't charge them, right? We did a lot of, and then Patriot Act within the United States, right? It was sort of a modern equivalent of internment, obviously not in the same sort of maybe not to the same degree, but a lot of people had their um, rights as American citizens violated for the notion of like national security, homeland security. So at least when I think about this speech, to me it is really the naivety that really just like... <laughs> yikes, yikes, yikes. I disagree strongly. <laughs> I'm sure uh, you would. I, I, think, I think this is actually very much in the line of FDR, nothing to fear, like it, which you picked first overall. So this is, to me, no one would say that George W. Bush was our most eloquent president or our best president, our smartest president. No one would say that. But he was the right man at the right time for that job. It, this this speech at this speech at the time, no, you, th you think like 
I think we probably all remember throwing out that first that first pitch at Yankee Stadium. Everyone's looking at this time. Our confidence is shattered in a very different way, and I would argue a far worse way than what happened during the Great Depression. People are scared for their lives. Our nation is literally under attack, and we need someone to come out and be kind of a strong leader that we can rally around. Obviously, after this, Congress rallies around George W. Bush. America rallies around George W. Bush. In hindsight, 2020, you want to like re say that we probably shouldn't have been in Iraq or we shouldn't have stayed in Afghanistan that long sure that's fine but it's kind of like Monday morning quarterbacking a, a, a moment that no one could have anticipated and I think like this speech at the time was really excellent and you kind of like poo poo like his saying making a distinction between the the religion of Islam and like the, these terrorists that was a really big deal and I think has often has gotten lost even in our discourse today with some of the, the the things that are happening he consistently not only in this speech but throughout his his time as president differentiated between the two in a way that he deserves a lot of credit for. I think words are nice, actions are different. The Patriot Act, you know exactly what happened under that act, right? Well, do you think George Bush is passing the Patriot Act? I mean, what do you mean? He's that's not. That's of course under his administration. Okay. Yes. He's, he's, Does he sign the Patriot Act? Well, yes. He's granted all those powers by Congress. Right. But, but who, I mean, who is the architect of this, right? Who is the architect of torture at Guantanamo Bay? That's that's George Bush and Dick Cheney, right? American values, throw them out the window when it comes to terrorism. So, I mean, yes, sure. America needed to like get back together again. And I think, I think you're right in a lot of ways in terms of that we needed a direction, we needed a focus, and we needed to have one bad guy to fight. I think the reality is that sort of history points that we just didn't have that. And we like had to create it in the name of First, the amorphous terrorists. Then it was like kind of Al-Qaeda. Then it was ISIS. Then it was this. Then it was that. Then it was Iraq. And, and I think people, I think the, I think the speech, maybe I'm probably giving the speech itself a bad rap. And I think it was probably better in its moment. But if I think about all of the things that precipitated from it, then all of a sudden I don't, I don't think about it as, as nicely. I'm going to walk the line here. I think I'm going to come to BK's defense in, uh, to a degree because I felt in the moment the speech itself was the message, was, was an appropriate message and was the message that I think America needs to hear at the time. Anything that followed, you know, I think uh, you raised a lot of good points. Um, but like messaging, I think the messaging, messaging was right. Maybe the implementation of the vision uh, can be debated. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you guys have touched upon it, but I think um, differentiating between the acts that occurred on that day and the religion of Islam was like uh, extremely important to emphasize during that speech just because of, I mean, it, it, it was still a very difficult time um, for like people, um, for, you know, for Muslims or people who, um, you know, even kind of like maybe looked like they could be, um, you know, or had like brown skin at that time. So I think it was like very important for the president at that point to call that out and make it clear that, um, you know, there's a, there's a difference between the two. When BK said that, you know, George Bush was like the man for the job then, I think there's, you know, it was a great speech, but I think there's, you know, other presidents too, even recent presidents who probably could have handled it as well. But they but, weren't, that wasn't even possible, right? If you think yeah. of the alternatives at the time. Yeah, so, sure. Yeah. Um, that was good. We haven't had a quality disagreement in a while. 
This is a gentleman's disagreement after all. Okay, uh, Daniel, we will throw it to you for your third round pick. Currently, you have MLK, I have a dream, and JFK race to space. All right, I'm gonna go. You have with... MLK and JFK. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, this you're is... also stuck in a in error, like much like I am. Yeah. Yeah, this is not good. It's for not gonna help you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm gonna stick though. I'm gonna be consistent and stick with a three letter here. So I'm gonna. I'll read a. A line, one second. Uh, the first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. The third is freedom from want, which translated into world terms means economic understandings, which will secure to every nation a healthy peacetime life for his inhabitants everywhere in the world. Lastly, the fourth is freedom from fear, which translated into world terms means a worldwide reduction of armaments to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor anywhere in the world. Uh, FDR, the four freedoms, or now better known as the arsenal of democracy speech. There we go. Perfect. Um, so I went for an FDR speech a little bit earlier than you, uh, Joe. I went, uh, this speech was made uh, January in January. We've got three FDR on the board right now. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I think I need to get one just to get involved. I need yeah. four terms to make speeches. Yeah, that's so. fair. Yeah. yeah. So January 1941, um, FDR. Um, this is you know uh, it's, this is 11 months before um, I believe it's 11 months. Yeah, 11 months before um, the uh, the events that happened at Pearl Harbor. Um, so this was a speech made by FDR. It outlined a future in which um, people of the world could enjoy four essential freedoms. Um, so this was made 11 months before uh, the terror attacks on Pearl Harbor. And um, so yeah, FDR gave the speech. It came to symbolize kind of a broader meaning behind America's effort to defeat fascism abroad. Um, it was delivered during the State of the Union on January 6, 1941. And he took a stance against the calls for isolationism prevalent at that time. Um, and, you know, issued a call to defend democracy globally, um, saying that the U.S. had a responsibility to fight. Um, you know, obviously, the, uh, you know, one year later, we, we entered the war. But um, these, like, four freedoms were very much like a um, kind of lived on after that. Um, you know, even, um, you know, through his, you know, his, his widow, Eleanor Roosevelt, um, incorporate the language from the four freedoms within the preamble of the University Declaration mm -hmm. of Human Rights. Um, so these ideas and these words kind of lived on, you know, even after that time. So for me, it's the line, the four freedoms is the really the core of the speech. And I think if you, you know, FDR, this is one of his three most important speeches. And uh, I think articulates very well the, the post-war vision he had for the world and his reasons why he was more of an interventionist than many of pe people around him, many people in the United States at the time until he's drawn into the war. So this is his articulation of this is what we should strive for in this modern world. So I think that's well said. But the line, I think, in hindsight has rung true the most is that the United States, the advocacy for being the arsenal of democracy. And we certainly see that in our world today. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was... Right, but I think it's really interesting. He's he's walking that fine line at at the time before again he's drawn into the war of what what should we do and uh, so many times in in the you know succeeding eighty years it seems like we are we continue to walk that line. Yep. Yeah, I mean this is the great sort of tension of American foreign policy, right? And mm -hmm. it, I think you see 
maybe bits of this in World War One, right, with Wilson, um, but then obviously the sort of the events of World War Two, most of Western Europe is in tatters, and you have the United States and the Soviet Union in juxtaposition between capitalism, communism, democracy, um, and sort of authoritarianism, and it. I, th- I think he, he you know, talk about the right man for the job. Like, he really... <laughs> an actual right man. An actual right man for the job. Um, but it it's... And to me, this is always, like, the tension that I have with him as president. It's like, in the moment, these things seem so necessary. And then we start to, like, subsequent administrations have to pull on these words and sort of do we live up to these words and when do we live up to these words and how and obviously we're struggling with this right now with ukraine but it's it's constantly the 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 issue that we have in terms of you know where where and when do we send our support and is it military and what does that look like does it look like troops does it look like money right like these words and sort of the arsenal of democracy like what a great turn of phrase but then the nitty gritty, like, what does that mean? Is it the blank checkbook? Is it troops? Is it bombs? Um, it's always, I think, that that piece of it, which is, I think, sort of the element of a great speech. Like, you can create these ideas that, that sort of are universally understood, and yet, what do they actually mean? So it's a little bit... Words are wind. Is right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so... Uh... This was the first speech that was not on my list, so I actually don't have anything to add. But wow, yeah. wow, Dan, yeah, I mean, I, I, board. I guess yeah, <laughs> you failed. That pick, okay. <laughs> so my my third pick, <laughs> I, I do think you will recognize the lines from this speech. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. I don't know. I don't think I know this. The man in the arena speech? No, I don't have this on my list. Wow, uh, Teddy. I don't. Breaker, I don't know. I don't know when it was, but it's. I feel like it's. So Teddy Roosevelt. This is a personal oh. favorite of of mine, and uh, and to me, I thought one of the ones where you would know the words from it. So originally, it was titled "Citizenship in a Republic." It was given to Sorbonne in France um, in 1910, uh, but more popularly known as the, the man in the arena. And again, is a personal favorite of mine. I think in doing my research about this speech, what I, what I loved about it was that Roosevelt is, he's post-presidency and he's giving this speech at a time now we're post-industrial revolution. We're kind of this, I, this idea that we're in this era of progress. Uh, it's this, I, this kind of conception in the United States and in Western Europe that we've advanced as societies, that we have this, these ideas of these institutions of higher education. Sorbonne in Paris is one of the foremost educational institutes in the world, and he's giving this the speech there. And what he's saying is that, like, yeah, it's all well and good that we have wealth now, and we have comfort, and we have education, we can have people that just go and study, and that's great. But that doesn't separate itself from the virtue of all of these 
generations, these centuries, millennia of people that have actually struggled to do the deed. And again, it's a speech about education and family and politics and all, so many, so many things. And, but it's this kind of call to action for people to not separate themselves from the world, to not just sit in their cocoons of wealth or privilege or comfort or education and to actually get out there and, and try to make the world a better place. I've always personally loved this speech. Yeah, it's, it, it is, it's one of my favorites. I think that notion also of, I mean, and, and, and I didn't know, I, I would say I knew none of the context, just yeah. like, just yeah. basically the, the few lines that you read and whenever I think about it, this notion of trying something without knowing whether or not you're going to succeed and being able to fail is actually the sort of the, the achievement is the goal in so many ways. And that, um, I think that's something that like, I feel like I wish I knew when I was younger, I love so many things I wouldn't try if I felt like I'm not going to be any good at that. And still to this day, it's something I sure. struggle with. But sure. like yeah. that speech is something that I, when I heard that and I read that and tried to internalize what I felt like it meant to me, which I think great speeches do, right? Yeah. You, they sort of figure out how to pull at each individual's, like how can other people relate to them? And 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 that was that was one of those for me, for sure. Neither Joe or Dan didn't seem to recognize that speech, so I won't put them on the you know, I'm not gonna, spot yeah. to add anything to that. I guess I should have saved that for my fourth thing. I thought for sure that was the one that was going to be in danger of getting picked. So, all right. Uh, well, I'll throw it to Ricky for – he's got two picks in a row. He's got right now FDR, nothing to fear, and Reagan tear down this wall. Ricky, your last, last pick of the third round, your first of your two final picks. Okay. I'm going to read a quote, and if no one – identifies it i will read another quote <laughs> let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of americans born in this century tempered by war disciplined by a hard and bitter peace proud of our ancient heritage and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed and to which we are committed today at home and around the world my fellow, and so my fellow Americans, yeah. ask not what your country yeah, can do for you, you ask what you can do for your country. Yeah. yeah. I was choosing between these I'm two, for, this, like the moon or this one. And yeah. I was like, I, I don't know. It was like, I got to say, I was amazed that this one dropped to me. I concur. Because I thankfully only have two picks left and I didn't want to do with them. I know. I was debating hard between this one. I thought yeah. my big board. The, yeah. Yeah. I, I will say this in line with um, the speech about going to the moon is very much uh, that that sort of positioning, right? Like he's about to take office January 20th, 1961. The Cold War is sort of well underway at this point, right? We're five, six years into Vietnam and it's not going so hot. There's all sort of, he's in, yeah, another one of these tension moments where he has to inspire hope and, John F. Kennedy, for all of his, uh, yeah, for, for for all the things that you would say about him, one of those is that he was he had sort of master with words and could really do that, really inspire hope among people. And so, and and that line that Kelly read, I think, is 
if you if you to think of a speech from a president off the top of your head, I feel like that line. It's is hanging in one. my house right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the one that comes up. Yeah. So master of um, delivering the words. Yeah, definitely. Because because your boy your boy Theodore behind is uh, you know the ghostwriter behind it, which is interesting to learn because like. I didn't. So I didn't, I didn't know, know any I of that. Didn't know this Ted Sorensen is the speechwriter that Dan just referenced. His book Counselor is, I think, a phenomenal read at some point. Oh, good to know. All right, but no, I, I didn't like. I didn't realize how, um, you know, how instrumental he was in, in a lot of like the speeches that JFK delivered. I mean, I think he was very much um, behind a lot of like the the wording of this of the speech that I mentioned earlier too, the Moon speech. So I think. Both of these, I know that Sorensen was like, yeah, a confidant and advisor for JFK, but, you know, definitely helped him, you know, pen some of these speeches. But obviously the way that JFK was able to deliver these. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned earlier, like, I think one of the, in the speech he met, he mentions, you know, um, one line is like, in its hour of maximum danger. So, I mean, this is definitely a tense time in American history and, you know, his ability to kind of like inspire hope. You know, I, I know we talked about this with like the the the, the man on the moon speech yep. as well, but um, JFK's ability to kind of the, this young like war hero to come in and kind of like bring that energy. So I think what's interesting is that the vast majority of the speech is dedicated to like worldly affairs, but this the speech is most famous for the really the one line that's mm -hmm. like Americans ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country and. So other quotes, quote, let every nation know whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Uh, and yeah, the, no, nothing else to really add there. I, I was also surprised that this was not the first JFK speech on the board. So Ricky, happy that it fell to you. I got another quote. Uh, he says, let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. Look at that. Look uh, at that turn of phrase. Now yeah. see yeah. that, like, because Dan mentioned the the anaphorism mm -hmm. for, yeah, for okay. use, yeah, using the eye of the dream. <laughs> yeah. This also has an interesting word in I don't. Did any of you guys write it down? Like this, the it's no, like a it's a specific stylist um, like use of language to say the negative and then say the opposite. Like I do what I like and I like what I do, kind of thing. Yeah, he. I mean, he doesn't. He doesn't explicitly call it the Soviet Union in speech. Oh, I was, thought that's what. That? No, that's anaphorism. I think. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I was just gonna say he doesn't explicitly call out the Soviet Union in this speech. I think this line is very much directed at the Soviet yeah. Union, but. Um, it's, it, uh, I don't know, it's, I, you know, I admire his willingness to negotiate in good faith, considering, uh, they're, you know, the, the middle of the Cold War and the, uh, you know, the tensions that do exist at the time. So, um, I thought that was, uh, interesting. Great. So Ricky, you are back on the clock with your final pick overall, the first pick of the fourth round. What do you got? Things are gonna get interesting now. Well, so like, I was gonna say now that, now that are... Brendan's approved of my top three. I said <laughs> to be, I can to say be fair, I said I during our little break, I said to Ricky, I said this is the best draft we've had so far. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a fourth round though. That yeah. like now there's gonna be things that are like are low on people's boards, and you know there's gonna be some like wild cards that feel like they're gonna come yeah. up. So, well, I'm I'm curious if this came up for you guys. Um, I'm really happy that it's 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 still available for me. So here's the quote. If it's necessary to form a black nationalist army, we'll form a black nationalist army. It'll be the ballot or the bullet. It'll be liberty or death. Well, it's Malcolm X. Yeah, yeah. So, the, all right, this speech, um, 
I, th- I want to say he'd given sort of versions of this, but this is sort of his, like, the protracted where he kind of is explaining what he means. Um, April 12th, 1964. So we are, I think, three months prior to the Civil Rights Act being passed, but, and, and almost uh, like eight months or so removed from the I Have a Dream speech, maybe six months or so, removed from the I Have a Dream speech. And this is the part of, right, when, you, when you're writing the linear history that you cut out or you make a footnote about Malcolm X, maybe some Black Panthers, right? The only way that we got civil rights is through uh, nonviolent civil disobedience, sit-ins, and Malcolm X in this speech is, although sort of tacitly in line or or sort of supportive of and of others like a Martin Luther King, he's really saying, or he's really sort of putting himself in kind of this the the tacit sort of possibility of a violent movement in juxtaposition to what the rest of sort of the mainstream civil rights movement is which is this kind of nonviolent movement which is the movement which has always been celebrated but this sort of threat of both violence and also just black political power which he really hones in on in this speech in a way that i had never really heard before um, you know, as a, a, mostly due to my own negligence of not learning about it, but also in part because I feel like it wasn't ever taught to me. Um, that that I think this is this is really important for it captures a lot of feelings that a lot of Americans, Black Americans, were having at this time that has been kind of glossed over in history as sort of a. Uh, a small faction of the movement, whereas I think it was really competing in many ways, neck and neck at the time. Um, and he does I, this this idea. I think he's been sort of pigeonholed in this like idea of another segregationist, but on the sort of the other side of the aisle. Basically, I think people will try and characterize his ideas as saying that he doesn't want race you know he doesn't want integration because uh you know x y and z thinks black people should live with black people and white people should live with white people but i think really when i listened to this speech more of what i took away from it was that in at the time there was so much inequality that trying to go to the negotiating table was always meant that you were sort of begging for scraps and that his idea was that you could create a society that had a thriving economy that elected its own um, officials that could then really negotiate from a from a stance of equality in a way that the movement kind of under Martin Luther King was kind of always begging for the system to deliver on the promises that it had that had already been made and that was consistently not delivering. He gives this great analogy where he's like, you know, if you're if you're wronged. You don't go to the criminal who has wronged you and ask for him to write you, right? You go to, like, you go to the court or you go seek your justice elsewhere. And his kind of idea was that the American system is what continually, continuously wrongs us. And, like, we need to go above it and we need to go beyond it. And that may 
include violence in a way that when you hear, when you think about the civil rights movement and the way that it's taught, all of its successes are pinned on sit-ins, you know, the bus boycott and things like that, those, the, the nonviolent marches, but there was so much more to it than that. And I think Malcolm X in many ways was like sort of at the forefront. Um, so I, anyways, yeah, I'm very happy with my yeah, four. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so interestingly, this uh, this came up in one of the list of results from Chat GPT. I largely disregarded it because <laughs> I, again, I'm looking for the lens of you make a speech. You know, where's the line you draw to what follows? And I kind of perceive this with. I really did not do any research. I honestly don't know that much about Malcolm X, but. I, it's for Ricky's all point. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I mean, I I took the uh, the stance that Malcolm X's approach lost to um, uh, Martin Luther King's approach. So I put MLK on the list, and I that's what they him. want you to believe. Yeah. Didn't yeah. ChatGPT yeah. tell you that? <laughs> <laughs> that's what yeah, I, I so. can't do. Right? That's yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so I, I I didn't consider it, but um, it's helpful to hear your stance on it. No, no, I mean, I think Ricky took everything I had to say, so I got more to add. Well said, Ricky. Okay, uh, so Ricky, you are done, and I think we can all agree that was your most successful job. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Try with Ricky. Yeah, good for you. We're all very happy for you. I'm a little disappointed. I was I know, for I something know. like wild in there, Ricky, you know? But... Pre preps overrated, Ricky. Yeah, <laughs> Taking away some of our barbs. Okay, so... This is tricky because there's so many great speeches out there and there are things higher on my board, but I, I am kind of cognizant of the things that are missing on my board as mm -hmm. well. And so this is one of those speeches that what I said at the beginning, right? I did my 10, 12 top of my head. This was not one that came to the top of my head. This is actually one that I came across that I was like, I've never even heard of this speech before. So this is a little bit, I think, of a bold choice. And if you guys didn't have it on your board, if you didn't hear of it, I don't blame any of you for that. I will read it uh, in a lengthy quote, as I have tended to do tonight, and we'll see if you can, can place it in history. Quote, earlier today, we heard the beginning of the preamble to the Constitution of the United States, we the people. It's a very eloquent beginning. But when that document was completed on the 17th of September in 1787, I was not included in the we the people. I felt somehow for many years that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton just left me out by mistake. But through the process of amendment, interpretation, and court decision, I have finally been included in We the People. My faith in the Constitution is whole. It is complete. It is total. And I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. If the impeachment provision in the Constitution of the United States will not reach the offensive charged here, then perhaps the 18th century Constitution should be abandoned to a 20th century paper shredder. Has the president committed offenses and planned and directed and acquiesced in a course of conduct to which the Constitution will not tolerate? That is the question. We know that. We know the question. We should now forthwith proceed to answer the question. It is reason and not passion which must guide our deliberations, guide our debate, guide our decision. So I don't want to have this on the list, but I think I might know. Is it a Jordan or no? Barbara Jordan. Barbara Jordan, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. During like research, I remember seeing, reading a little bit about that. Yeah, so that was so so 1974. This is obviously Nixon. The, the Nixon okay. yeah, Im yeah. impeachment, 
And I also, Barbara Jordan came up in two speeches. She has a, a 1976 speech. Democratic National Convention speech and I think was traditionally rated higher on some of the things that I saw. And so I went and looked at both of them. And this speech really touched me in a way that the, the other speech didn't, in which some other speeches that I think are more famous didn't as well. And what I think is, is very cool about this speech is, so 1974, House Judiciary Committee, on which Barbara Jordan is, is serving, has been charged with figuring out, like, should we proceed with these articles of, of impeachment, which is obviously a huge deal. This is only a second president, the first in 90 years to have, to have faced impeachment. And every committee member is given 15 minutes to make a speech kind of for or against going forward these articles of impeachment. And Barbara Jordan gives these this speech. And from every recollection I read, it held the whole room like spellbound. And this is 10 years after, less than 10 years after the Civil Rights Act. And here we have this black woman standing up and questioning the President of the United States adherence to the art to the Constitution. And what a powerful thing that is. And so not only did I hear that it resonated within the committee in terms of deciding to go forward with the articles of impeachment, but also rallied a lot of black Americans who kind of had lost faith in the government after Dr. King's assassination of like, this is not a government for me. You have this black woman up here making this speech and being like, I believe in this constitution. He is violating it. I am not going to stand here and let him do it. And what I think what a, I started this by saying I get chills. I'm doing it now. I feel that. Um, <coughs> what a moment for this black woman, probably the, the person in the United States, like stereotypically, that has been subjugated the most, standing up to a white man president and saying, you are violating the things that we all hold dear. You should be held to account for that. So for all of those reasons, this was a speech I did not know, but I'm very happy that we do things like this, so I got to know it. Well said. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I had not heard that speech before either. Her speech at the Democratic National Convention came across as on like the the wikipedia 20 minutes before we started and but she is a politician is a very interesting woman right yeah. like she tried to run for the the democratic ticket i think in the 70s maybe she's only in politics for six years yeah she's in makes a huge splash and yeah. out yeah. yeah 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 exactly but i mean we've talked about sort of the inner workings of the democratic party i think that had to do with a lot of her, like, she came in very high on the ideals, riding sort of the civil rights movement and feeling like, hey, we're finally about to make do on a lot of these promises, and then there's then there's this, and, and then I, I, I think a very, like, not public, but documented sort of experience that she had in trying to sort of further her political career where it wasn't accepted by the democratic establishment because obviously although she's a democrat and, and clearly has those oratory skills doesn't you know was not fitting the mold of the democratic party which in many ways like malcolm x also very much pointed to the democrats are no more your friends than the republicans are here yeah. uh, when it comes to civil rights like they're they're as much of the problem as as the other party, the the difference is one will say it to your face, the other yeah. is doing it behind your back. One thing about Barbara Jordan, Boston University Law School graduate. Oh, wow. There you go. Hey, a lot of Boston connections with these speeches. Not a surprise. Yeah. Not a surprise. All right. Well, We're talkers here. We'll throw it to Daniel for his final pick here. All right. Uh, kind of going along the same lines as Brendan, um, bringing in... Uh, 
Well, we'll see. I'll, I'll uh, read the speech. Um, I don't know if you're gonna. Maybe it's the same. I'm okay. hoping it's the speech that I passed up on for that one. Yeah. I don't know. Um, if there's one message that echoes forth from this conference, let it be that human rights are women's rights, and women's rights are human rights once and for all. Oh. As long as discrimination and inequities remain so commonplace everywhere in the world, as long as girls and women are valued less, fed less, fed last, overworked, underpaid, not schooled, subjected to violence in and outside their homes, the potential of the human family to create a peaceful, prosperous world will not be realized. Susan B. Anthony? No, it's, no. this is Hillary Clinton. Yes. Women's rights are human oh, rights. Yeah, okay. yeah. I thought you were going to do um, the Eleanor Rose. I thought it was going to be Sojourner Truth, and I a woman. So yeah, like, that's what that I was. So I was, look at us. The three of us are all in the same yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. So... Similarly, like going through, um, you know, a lot of the research, like towards the end, I was like, all right, I mean, got a lot of guys on this. You know, there's not a ton of um, speeches from women that were falling on my list. Um, and, you know, the Barbara, some of the Barbara Jordan speeches were all like some of those like top hundred lists that you would see online. And this Hillary Clinton speech was was one as well that I had never read before or knew anything about really. Um, so this was a the, the line women's rights are human rights is not she didn't coin that you know that was a phrase that was used in like the in the feminist movement um in the 80s and the 90s but um clinton used these words um on a speech in on september 5th 1995 at the united nations fourth fourth world conference on women in beijing um i thought this speech was pretty cool too because it was very much like she was in defiance of kind of well going into it speaking in beijing there was like a lot of like sentiment around that you need to have a speech that wasn't going to like rile up too many people or like offend too many people in Beijing. And she, you know, had this speech where she, you know, these don't sound, these ideas don't sound controversial to us right now, but those, like those words in Beijing at that time was something that was like difficult for her to do and that she was going to get, you know, criticized for. So it was like a very powerful speech at the time. And um, you know, there was definitely like, um, people around her that I think Clinton, you know, her husband had read the speech, um, but a lot of his aides had not. And there was definitely like a sentiment around her that, that she needed to like, kind of like tone down like, whatever speech she was going to give. And she didn't kind of like really dilute it at all. Um, so this is very much like those words have become very much a, um, you know, recited and in, in the women's movement as well. So. Yeah, that, I think it's it's a good choice. Uh, I, again, I'm sure for all of us, as we're looking at these like, historical speeches, it's been a male-dominated society for so long, and so that's why we have so many men on our list. And so you have to look a little harder to find these women's speeches. And so whether it's in 1974 or 1992 or three or, um, or even before then, uh, I think it's important while maybe most people wouldn't be aware of them, it's important to highlight them. So I'm glad we get at least a few in here yep. towards the end of the draft. All right, Joe, you are wrapping up your final pick, the final pick of the draft. All right, well, uh, this is a classic final pick for me. It's a little uh, outside the box. I'll, love I'll, it, I'll love it. I'll read a quote. Uh, I guarantee none of you have this on your list. Guarantee! <laughs> but uh, I'm sure you'll probably pick up on the quote. So, an iPod, a phone, <laughs> And an internet communicator. Yeah, <laughs> an, I, an iPod, a yeah. phone, and an internet communi communicator. Are you getting it? Steve Jobs. Yeah. Uh, What's right. the product? The iPhone. It's the iPhone. 
So this is the worst pick. <laughs> yes. So uh, following up your surf pick, delivered on, delivered on January 9th, yeah. two thousand seven. <laughs> Steve Jobs hops out on stage in his iconic black uh, turtleneck with his glasses, and he says he's going to introduce three products today: an iPod, uh, a phone, and an internet internet communication device. And the crowd believes it's going to be three products, but then, you know, he surprised the crowd. He says, this is all one device. And I forgot how uh, kind of captivating of a speed of a speaker Jobs is and actually how quite funny is. So he says, this is the device and it's uh, it's an iPod with like a rotary phone dial. Um, so obviously he had a little fun with uh, the design of the product. But of course, we know it, uh, it ended up being the initial iteration of the iPhone. Um, and you know, it's just obviously a silly choice, but it falls in line with my theme of before and after, you know, look at our phone, look at our phones on the table. We all have iPhones, right? Yeah. The industry literally changed that day. Previously we'd use Blackberries, uh, journey by Nokia, Nokia or, um, devices like Motorola. They were big, they were clunky. They had physical keyboards. So the iPhone, it had a single screen, you know, a single home button, uh, a digital keyboard, and it was unlike any device that had been created at that time. So really, it uh, it really did revolutionize the industry. We take, you know, we take, you know, multi-touch gestures for granted, but in the moment, like, you know, iPhone's boring now, it's, we've reached peak iPhone, but in the moment, it really was a quite uh, captivating device, so. Uh, this from a guy with Android every year. Until <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the green message guy ruining all our texts for, for years. Decades. But I, it's well, hard to disagree in terms of like the 21st century. I don't know if, again, like is the speech having the impact or is is that sort of just like the the point where such and such thing is, is now happening and you have to point to a moment like the before and the after, right? I think just the idea of internet on your phone was really, I mean, BlackBerry had email and the BBM messages, but it wasn't a place that you could share photos or research things or figure out maps or anything like everything that, that or so much of the way the economy has gone since then is directed because we have this, this entire universe in the palm of our hands now. And I, yeah, I think it's, it's, Kind of like, it's not like a direct comparison, but like in terms of like, was a speech good or like, like, like what you said, um, what came out of it and like, I'm not even sure if you can really tie the two, but like, if you're talking about like George Washington's farewell address, like, was it a good speech? I don't know. I can't really quote much from it. Like I can't quote anything from Steve Jobs' speech, but like, but in terms of like what came out of it though, like it was symbolic because of like what it like represented and then like or like Steve Jobs, like what came, like it was, what came out of that is like the iPhone, you know? Whereas like for like Washington, like I don't, I don't think people look at that speech like it was a great speech, but what came out of it, it was like, it was very like symbolic and like it was, it paved the way for a lot of things. So like, it's a very tenuous line, but like something like, the speech itself wasn't great. People might not say, so. 
pretty sure this was a draft of the greatest speeches. So yeah, I do. I appreciate that Joe has stuck with the theme, no matter what the draft is. In his fourth pick, he's always going <laughs> to insert some technological advancement in there. All right, so yeah. what we end up with, and I want to hear people's things that they were surprised didn't get drafted, or things that you maybe wish you could have drafted. Um, but I'll run down the final list. Joe's got. Patrick Henry, Give Me Liberty, Give Me Death, FDR, A Day That Will Live in Infamy, George W. Bush, September 11th speech, and Steve Jobs, The iPhone speech. You're going to have to give me the title of that one. Uh, Dan <laughs> Just has, like quarterly release. Yeah, 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 like, 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 updating our investors. Earnings call. Dan has MLK, I Have a Dream, JFK, Race to Space, FDR, Four Freedoms, and Hillary Clinton, Women's Rights or Human Rights. I have Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, Frederick Douglass's What to a Slave is the Fourth of July, Teddy Roosevelt's Man in the Arena, and Barbara Jordan's Articles of Impeachment, and Ricky has FDR's Nothing to Fear, Ronald Reagan's Tear Down This Wall, JFK's First Inaugural, and Malcolm X, The Ballot or the Bullet. Dan, what were some that you are surprised didn't get drafted that you had on your board? I guess one was the Washington Farewell yep. Address. Highest on my board that wasn't drafted. Yep, yep. same here. Was that a speech? Yeah, fair. that's a, totally that's, fair. That's like uh, my... That was my issue with that. Um, one second, maybe a couple more. One was uh, Woodrow Wilson's uh, 14 points. Um, That's the one I was saying is kind of the precursor to FDR's, the four. Uh, yeah, freedoms. Four freedoms. Then, I mean, got a few other, but then one other one that I was, if someone would have taken um, I Have a Dream, I was going to go with I've Been to the Mountaintop. Yes. So Definitely that was, was. A, yeah. Uh, a great speech that I hadn't um, listened to or read about. But, yeah. yeah, great speech. Uh, I I think Dan pretty much covered all the other ones that I that I would have expected may have been picked. Uh, I'll throw my honorable mention to uh, Eisenhower's yep. farewell great. address. Great, one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I might just toss a little quote in here. Um, Oh, no, I lost it. Oh, uh, <laughs> a vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be might ready for instant action so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. I'll just do a couple dot, dot, dots in there. Um, uh, never mind. No. Uh, yet we must... What? Yep. We must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. In the councils of government... We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought by the military-industrial complex. Mm -hmm. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. Yep. And very much does. Yeah. I, this is, I, I brought this up when I talked about it. Eisenhower, mm -hmm. and one of the, in my opinion, one of our greatest presidents and probably most overlooked presidents, this speech is phenomenal. Not surprised it didn't get picked because there's no great line from it. People don't really remember it historically, but that's a, it's a great speech. Joe, what do you got? couple honorable mentions are the Truman Doctrine speech, hmm. which um, basically uh, um, verbalized the uh, stance of containment of the Soviet Union uh, and led to the Cold War, largely led to the Cold War, or played a part in leading to the Cold War. Um, also, Susan B. Anthony's On Women's Right to Vote. And, um, you know, there are a couple of Obama speeches that I quite liked. But, Shocked that yeah, Obama no, didn't no get Obama, mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, through like through through the very narrow lens that I was working through, I yeah. just felt like there wasn't much uh, in terms of like 
significant uh, event. Well, yes, yeah, significant uh, impact. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just bounce off that. Both Obama's a more perfect union speech mm-hmm. from March of 2008 when he's in the middle of this Democratic primary against Hillary Clinton. It's, yeah. it's like almost shocking to feel like someone could give a speech like that these days. Only 16 years later, it feels like it couldn't possibly yeah. happen. That's a beautiful and brilliant speech and worth going back and revisiting. And also his inaugural address, yeah. I, I think, is probably a moment that all of us remember and people of our generation will always remember. While the words are good, I think that's just one of those memories that people have Lincoln's second inaugural um i think when he's he's looking ahead towards the end of the civil war and what's going to happen i think for me that was huge just because he's assassinated unfortunately a short time later but if he had lived how different reconstruction could have been um i mentioned this earlier sojourner truce uh, ain't i a woman's speech with both advocating for women's rights and black rights and black women in particular rights i thought was uh, an important important speech. I think everything else has been mentioned. There, there's so much to choose from. We'd be very curious if, if you feel like we've missed something, but we certainly appreciate people that have stuck with us for for these several hours. We love this. Uh, we hope that you enjoy this as well. As always, we welcome any feedback that people have. For Joe, for Ricky, for Dan, we are <coughs> signing off for the fourth annual President's Day Draft. Till next time. See you, buddy. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue, debating all the issues of the day. No agenda, not yet. Talking heads. Running around till we forget where it was we began. Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because even though it did not share. Pains we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share an American ideal. Friends made over arguments. And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree 
Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for hope I used to find it. Chase the lion's head. Folks are different mind because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. Oh, what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks are different mind because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.